We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 30 this morning. Our message is called The Gospel According to Moses' Genealogy. And as you're turning there, please remember that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, even genealogies. Exodus chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. These are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. The years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, Zikri, the sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elazaphan, and Sitri. Aaron took as his wife Elishaba, the daughter of Amminadab, and the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Aser, Elkanah, Abisaph, these are the clans of the Korah, Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phineas. These are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses, to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? May God bless the reading and preaching of his word. Let's pray. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Father, we desire life from your word this morning. As your son said, it is 
not by bread alone that we live, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Lord, these are words that come from your mouth. Feed us now. Give us food from the abundance of your house and drink from rivers of your delight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, you may be seated. So it just so happens that we read two genealogies this morning, one from Genesis 25 and here from Exodus chapter 6. There are actually some 25 genealogies found in Scripture, and I don't know how you do your daily Bible reading, but for me, whenever I come to these genealogies, uh, these are the most difficult parts of Scripture to read. They're actually harder for me than the Levitical purity laws, because at least when you come to those, you, you can say, okay, I know that God is aiming at holiness in me, and somehow this relates to the gospel. But when you get to these genealogies, and first of all, you're tripping over the, the names of these guys themselves, but it just seems so irrelevant. And so what I typically do is I just gloss over them real quick, see if I can see any names that, that I recognize and just speed read it. But... The apostle says that all scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be fully equipped for every good work. This genealogy here has been breathed out by God. And that means that God has intended for it to bless us, to benefit us, to prune us, to build us up, to make us more like Christ, to move us from one degree of glory to another. Now, this particular genealogy, on the surface, it seems to break up the flow of the Exodus narrative. Uh, Kind of like how when the hobbits stumble into Tom Bombadil's land, um, three chapters of Tom Bombadil, and you're like, dude, just get to Strider, just get to the end of the Prancing Pony. But to, yep. <laughs> but, but that's to miss a vital part of the story. Um, this genealogy is not filler. It's... It's actually a precious treasure. By God giving us this list of names, we see that God is not rescuing Israel because they're just a little bit better than Egypt. He would tell them later in Deuteronomy, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart, for you are a stubborn people and you have rebelled against the Lord. This genealogy displays that God saves the worst kind of people. Beloved, God did not rescue you because you were a little better than others. We are just like the Egyptians. 
while we were still sinners, while we were still dead in our sin, God sent a Savior because of his great love for us. So here's our big idea this morning. Every genealogy in Scripture tells the story of notorious sinners and the Savior who saved them. So let's begin then with our doctrine. If you remember from last week, we we said that God always writes the story in such a way where he's always seen as the hero. He doesn't share the credit with anyone. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.30 that because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. God alone wanted to save us And everybody on the planet, including ourselves, wars against his saving purposes. So catching up in Exodus chapter 5, we see the display of this truth perfectly. Pharaoh warred against the grace of God. He wouldn't let Israel go. Israel warred against the grace of God. They sided with Pharaoh against Moses. Moses warred against the grace of God because he came and accused the Lord of wrongdoing. God is the only one in this story who wanted to save Israel. And this genealogy accentuates that truth before they go back to Pharaoh. So consider this genealogy from 30,000 feet, first of all. This genealogy lists the first three sons of Israel. So Reuben, the firstborn, and his sons, that's verse 14. Simeon, the secondborn of Israel, verse 15, and his sons. And then Levi, verse 16, and his sons. So no other sons are listed. There's 12 sons of Israel, but only these first three are listed. Uh, The reason being is because Levi is the focal point of this genealogy. From verse 16 onward, it's all about Levi. Now, there are other reasons that Reuben and Simeon are mentioned, which we'll see here in a moment, but one reason is just to establish that Levi is, in fact, the third-born son of Israel. The ministry of the tabernacle and all the religious duties of Israel fell to which tribe? Levi. Okay, the tribe of Levi. Look look with me, Levi's first son, Gershon, in verse 16. All of his descendants in verse 17. If we go to Numbers 3, we won't turn there now, but they were responsible for all the coverings of the tabernacle, all the curtains, all of the, uh, the, the cloth for the tent itself. Levi's second son, Kohath, verse 16, all of his descendants in verse 18 were in charge of all the holy things inside of the tent. And then Levi's third son, Merari, verse 16, And all of his descendants, verse 19, were in charge of all the supporting structures, the poles, the bases, the pillars, etc. You can find those places in Numbers 3 and Numbers 4. Now, by listing off these particular men, 
who would build and keep and maintain the tabernacle, what do we learn about God's heart? What do we learn about God's heart? That he longs to meet and commune with his people. The tabernacle is the place where God met with man. It was called the tent of the meeting. This is who God is. We, we see the same theme in Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. God loves to commune with man. Children, boys and girls, God willing, when you get married one day and have a family of your own, how important will your home be, your house be? What happens in your home? It's where you live your life with your spouse and with your children. You do all the, the best things there. You laugh together, you cry together, you eat together, you sleep together. And someone built that home. Someone has to maintain that home. This was brought near to me this week. We had a pipe break under our house. And I was under the house last night with a vacuum cleaner sucking like a, two big shop vacs full of water. And, and, I, and I was thinking about this passage. Why do I care about my home? Well, there are lots of reasons, but the main reason is because my family is there. The Levites were in charge of the very tabernacle, the very home where God dwelt with man on earth. Enlisting these Levites, God shows how much he desires to meet and dwell with his people. Just take that, that baffling thought into your spirit for a moment. That, that though God is infinitely excellent, though he is perfectly satisfied in in Father, Son, and Spirit, the inter-Trinitarian fellowship, that, that there's a sweetness to it, that though their communion is perfect bliss, perfect happiness, a fullness of everlasting joy, they don't need anything outside of themselves for their enjoyment. These three persons of the Trinity desire to commune with man who's made of the dust. And no wonder why the psalmist says, who is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? This is the most delightful mystery. Yahweh wants to dwell with man. Jehovah wants to be near to him, to, to be in his presence, to, that he would that we would come and feast off the abundance of his house and drink from the rivers of his delight. Now, the other reason that this genealogy is focused on Levi, other than the tabernacle, is because Moses and Aaron came from this tribe. Look at verse 20 with me. Amram, that's the grandson of Levi, took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. 
In other words, Aaron and Moses weren't some random men. They were authentically Hebrews, descended from the very, uh, the very patriarch of the faith, Abraham. But perhaps surprisingly, Moses is not the focus of this genealogy at all. Not one of his sons is mentioned. After he's mentioned here, it, it goes entirely to Aaron. Look at verse 23. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Aminadab, and the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Then again, look in verse 25. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites by their clans. So, Question is, is why is there a focus on Aaron? Why is Aaron the focus? Please turn with me to chapter 28, verse 1. Out of all of the descendants of Levi, Aaron in particular was set aside by God. Exodus 28, verse 1. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. One more place, turn to Exodus 40, verses 14 and 15. Once again, speaking of Aaron and his sons, Exodus chapter 40, verses 14 and 15. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. Do you see? Aaron and his descendants alone served as priests out of all of Israel. So the Levites as a whole took care of the tabernacle, but Aaron and his sons in particular took care of the priesthood. This is what the whole genealogy is driving at. It's driving at the priesthood. Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, Ithamar, and Phinehas were all priests. And we don't have a, a priesthood like Israel had back then. And so we, we might wonder, well, why is this ministry of the priesthood so vital? Because the priests alone atoned for the sins of the people. How could sinful man commune with a holy God only through shed blood, only through sacrifice? Only through God's wrath being propitiated. So this genealogy points to the priesthood because this genealogy is full of notorious sinners. It's full of guilt and shame. So we arrive at our doctrine then this morning. Every genealogy in Scripture tells the story of notorious sinners and the Savior who saved them. 
So let's consider the genealogy a little bit more closely now. And I'm not going to focus on everybody. Everybody in this list are at least general sinners. Let's focus on the particularly notorious ones. So first of all, we have Reuben, Israel's firstborn in verse 14. What do we know about Reuben? Well, Reuben slept with his father's concubine. Genesis 35, 22, while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhal, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now, setting aside the fact that Israel had a concubine, one of his four wives, it was a double evil on Reuben's part to sleep with her. She gave birth to two of his own brothers, Dan and Naphtali. Then we have Simeon. Look at verse 15. His sixth son was Shaul. Who was who his mom? A Canaanite woman. Why would that be included here? Well, to point out that Simeon had an affair with a forbidden woman who belonged to the cursed people of Canaan. Then we have Levi. Uh, who, along with Simeon, murdered a whole city of men. Uh, Back in Genesis 34, when their sister Dinah was raped by Shechem the Hivite, they they deceived Shechem, along with all of the men of his city, into getting circumcised in order to trade for their sister. And while they were recovering from their surgery, Simeon and Levi went to the city and raided it and murdered every last man. Murdered them. And Israel was so angry over this affair that he cursed them when he was close to his death. In Genesis 49... 5 through 7, he says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. My glory be not joined to their company. For in their anger, they killed men. And in their willfulness, they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now, it was from this tribe... Levi's tribe that were under Israel's curse that Moses and Aaron came forth. Next, we read of Moses' own father. Look at verse 20. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister. Moses' dad slept with his own aunt. Moses and Aaron were born of incest. Uh, John Calvin says here, quote, Although the law had not yet forbidden illicit marriages, yet did not nature itself teach that it was improper for a nephew to have relations with his aunt, who stands in the degree of his mother. When therefore Moses does not hesitate to confess that he sprang from an incestuous marriage, he does not only fail to consult his own reputation, but ingeniously proclaims the disgrace of his parents for the sake of illustrating solely the grace of God. Why are all these warts thrown in, in other words? In order to highlight the mercy and grace of God, Calvin says. Verse 21 
Next, there is Korah in verse 21. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, Zikri. It was Korah who led the insurrection along with 250 other men in number 16 against his cousin Moses in order to overthrow his leadership. And then there is Aaron himself. We're going to see that when Israel finally makes their escape out of Egypt, Moses goes on top of the mountain, and when Israel sees that he delays a little bit longer than what they thought, they turn to Aaron and they say, hey, make for us a God. And they give him all their gold, and he makes for them a golden calf, a metal cow for them to worship. And then we have Nadab and Abihu, the first two sons of Aaron in verse 23. After hearing all of the regulations that they were to follow when it came to offering worship to the Lord, they decided to worship according to their own understanding anyway. Number uh, Leviticus 10.1, now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. They were put to death. These high priests gave the high hand to the Lord. And then chapter 6 closes by focusing on one more sinner. Look with me, starting at verse 26. These are Aaron and Moses, to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their host. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But... Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Now, note that verse 30 here is a repetition of verse 12. He says it twice. Behold, I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. As we saw last week, this is Moses confessing his sin to To be uncircumcised was to be impure, to be unclean, to be outside of the covenant, to be rebellious. But why is it repeated here? Why does it bookend the genealogies? Well, A.W. Pink offers some helpful insight. He says this. The objection of Moses in verse 30 is evidently the same as verse 12. And yet, there's a reason for its repetition. In chapters 3 and 4, Moses makes five objections in reply to the Lord. And here in chapter 6 are two more, making seven altogether. It was therefore the complete exhibition of the weakness and unbelief of Moses. You know that's the number of completion, seven. Seven times the number of perfection Moses raises objections or argues with the Lord or confesses his guilt. Seven times he brings forward his inadequacies, his unbelief, his weakness, his sin. 
So before even one hoof is delivered out of Egypt, Moses is shown to be a complete or perfect sinner. Now let's think about this very carefully then. It was these people, it was these people that God rescued out of Egypt. These incestuous people, these insurrectionists, these murderers, these idolaters, these false worshipers, these who were under a curse and joined themselves with those who were cursed. How is this group any different than those in Egypt? They weren't. They weren't at all. Israel was identical in sin to Egypt. And this is one of the first lessons that we have to learn about the gospel. Um, The gospel should continue to shock you. It should continue to surprise you. If if the gospel doesn't ever shock you, you have to ask yourself, which, which gospel am I believing? God put this genealogy right here. He put it right here at the beginning of this dramatic rescue so that we could see the resume of the people that he's about to rescue. Not those who are healthy, not those who um, are are righteous, but the sick, the deplorable, the profane, the the blasphemer, the sexually immoral, the, the prodigal. That's our doctrine, that the the genealogical line of the seed of the woman is just as sinful, just as vile as the genealogical line of the seed of the serpent. But God, according to his great mercy, has snatched us out of the fire and brought us into his family. So let's look then at our duty next. Our first duty is just to simply consider how the genealogies in Scripture work to encourage our hearts. How do the genealogies in Scripture work to encourage our hearts? And and the first consideration is that These genealogies demonstrate the historicity of the Bible. They demonstrate the historicity of the Bible. Boys and girls, children, you have a genealogy. You you have names. Your parents have names. Your grandparents, your great-great-great-great-grandparents have names. Why? Because they were real flesh-and-blood people. These genealogies that we're reading were real people. The Bible is not at all like the Lord of the Rings. Um, The genealogies in Tolkien's tales are fiction. These ones are real. Um, Philip Riken tells the story of a native tribe that was once converted by a genealogy in Scripture. Listen to what he says. Quote, a Western missionary had worked with these natives for many years and had often shared the good news about Jesus Christ, but with little result. 
Finally, he translated one of the biblical genealogies that went all the way back to Adam. Now we know that what you say is true, the natives said. We recite the names of our ancestors, but we had forgotten the beginning. Now we know that the Bible is true. The natives repented of their sin. They received Jesus Christ as the son of David, the son of Adam, the son of God. These genealogies uh, demonstrate the reality of Scripture. They're not myths. They're not tales. They connect us to all of the other people that lived before us all the way back to the beginning of the world. Our second consideration then is to consider how these genealogies show the affection that God has for each of his individual children. They show the affection that God has for each of his individual children. I had a Christian brother uh, who I found um, through a name from somebody else who came and fixed the pipe that broke under my house this week. And we were sitting there talking about the Bible and um, doctrine, and he was a very likable brother. And the doctrine of election came up because, you know, that's always the doctrine that comes up in conversations, right? Um, I don't know if I brought it up. I, I might have, but um, <laughs> he, he, was, he resisted it, though. He, what he said was, yeah, God, um, yeah, that word is found in Scripture, but God elects, he, he chooses people groups, he doesn't elect persons, individuals. And that just hurt my heart to hear it. Um, God didn't have individuals in his heart. Uh, that God didn't have individuals in his plan. These genealogies show that, that God doesn't just have a, a plan for this nebulous, faceless mass of humanity, but that he has specific individuals in mind with specific names. Uh, Isaiah 43.1, uh, But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. These genealogies shows that God counts his children one by one, that he knows all the, the hairs on their head, that he keeps all of their tears in his bottle, that he knows all of their days before one of them passes. They, they prove, 2 Timothy 2.19, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal, the Lord knows who are his. You, you may say at this point, but, but my name is not on any of these lists. On any list in Scripture, how does this genealogy help me? But if you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, your name is on these lists. Galatians 3.29 says, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. If you belong to Christ, you're a child of Abraham, and this Exodus story is your story. But you may say, well, 
but I have been too sinful. I've sinned against too much light. I've turned my back on God too many times. Surely God has marked me off his list by now. I know that feeling. I know that feeling too well. Dear congregation, I was raised in a Christian home. I was raised having family worship at the dinner table. I knew the Bible. When my parents got divorced when I was in third grade, and then by the time I became a teenager, my life was spiraling out of control. By the time I was 15, I was already on the drug scene. I was engaged in illicit sexual immorality. By the time I was 18, I was at college, uh, getting drunk, partying with complete strangers every night, dragging myself in a fog to my college classroom. My conscience was stricken. It was smitten. The only thing I could do to silence it was turn the music up louder, do some more drugs, party some more. When I was sober, I felt so ashamed. I was a shell of a man. And I felt that I had outsinned God's grace. But God brought, but God brought me back to his home. Because I'm his. I'm on his list. I belong to him. And and Jesus received a charge from his father. He said, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of those he gave me. I was on his list from eternity past. And the reason why I did not cascade into hell is because he keeps his word. Loved one, if you have been born again by the Holy Spirit, if you have trusted Emmanuel, the great Prince of Peace, then you cannot out his grace. Have you committed illicit sexual immorality? Well, take heart, you're, you're in no worse of a position than Reuben, whom God, Jehovah, delivered from Egypt. Have you committed murder? If the Lord saves Simeon and Levi who murdered men in cold blood, has his arm grown so short that he's unable to save you? Have you, do you feel cursed by your father and your mother? If God redeems Simeon and Levi from their father's curse, then surely he can remove any stain or, or shame your parents have heaped upon you. Have you committed purposeful and presumptuous idolatry like Aaron? Well, if God saved Aaron, certainly he's still willing and able to turn your heart back to the, to the living and true God. Have you sinned against light again and again and again and again? Moses was a seven-time perfect, complete sinner. Don't you see that you're in the same position as he is? No, dear friend, you have not outsinned the grace of God. This genealogy shows us that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So those are our duties. First, to consider that genealogies show the historicity of the Bible. Secondly, 
to consider that these genealogies show the tender affection that God has towards individuals. Thirdly, to consider that if you are in Christ, these genealogies are your genealogies. And then thirdly, fourthly, to consider that no matter what sin you've committed, you can't be disqualified from the grace of God. So let's look finally at our delight this morning. Believe it or not, we could actually preach on genealogies for like three or four more weeks, but we're not going to. Um, I skipped over so much stuff. There's no accidents in this genealogy, not one, not one. This genealogy started with an adulterer, verse 14, Reuben. Who does it end with? Ends with Phineas. What is he famous for? Slaying an adulterer. Look at verse 25. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putio, and she bore him Phineas. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 25. There's a reason this genealogy ends with Phineas. Numbers chapter 25. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Notice their sexual immorality was then graduated to idolatry. Verse 3, so Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of the meeting. Zimri was this man's name. In the midst of all of this controversy, in the sight of everyone, he took this Midianite woman, this woman outside of the covenant, his mistress in front of them all, and he was going to have sex with her in God's own house. Verse 7, when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus, the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, 
Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood. Because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. Altogether, God killed 24,000 people by this plague before Phineas did his work. He stopped the plague by piercing two sinners and shedding their blood. Phineas is included in our genealogy to show us what the dreadful end of sin is. It's death. The wages of sin is death. All of the sinners in this genealogy deserve death. That's what Reubens and Simeon's and Levi's sin all leads to. It leads to execution. The soul that sins shall die. Our God is a holy, holy, holy God. You might say at this point, but what about all this talk about God's grace and and that being welcomed by Him no matter what we've done? Well, that's the very crux of the matter, isn't it? God does welcome notorious sinners into His family, but He doesn't welcome them by ignoring their sin. He must Do the work. Phineas must act. And here's the glory of the gospel, dear loved ones, that Phineas, Aaron's son, the priest, he pierced those sinners, bringing upon them the wages of their own death. But Jesus Christ, God's son, our great high priest, was pierced for us. Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Phineas satisfied the wrath of God by shedding the blood of sinners. But Jesus Christ satisfied the wrath of God by shedding his own blood for us sinners. Revelation 1, 5, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his own blood. Phineas ended the plague in Israel, but Jesus Christ ends the plague for all time for those who trust in him. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes on him who sent me has passed from death to life. He will not come into the judgment, but has eternal life. Dear congregation, this genealogy is a testimony of the gospel. It began with the sin of Reuben and it ended with the salvation of Phineas. And that's your story, isn't it? You began in sin. All of us did. But Jesus Christ, the true and better Phineas, didn't leave us there. His salvation has the final word. He's our great high priest. 
He's made atonement for our sin. He put an end to the plague of death that hung over our life. He satisfied God's wrath for us where our sin abounded. His grace abounded all the more. Where we were once idolaters, he turned us to the true and living God. Where we were once adulterers, he joined us in union to the bridegroom in heaven. Where we were once under a curse, he transformed us into new creations. Where we were once seven times sinners, he clothed us with the very righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where we were once in slavery, he's now set us free. If Phineas, the true and better son of God, has set you free, you are free indeed. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we could see Israel's resume, their pedigree before they were rescued, Lord, so that we don't get the wrong idea. So we don't get the wrong idea that Egypt was the bad guys and Israel was the good guys, Lord, that they were all bad guys. And you, by your free grace, by unbounding mercy, by love that has no explanation except for in your own heart, you save them. And God, we thank you that you have done the same for us that you have shown us great mercy, not because of works of righteousness that we have done, but according to your own mercy, you have saved us and renewed us. And so, Father, we thank you for this word, and we pray that it would inform our very lives, that we, as we look at others in the world, as we go out in to our vocations and to our callings, that we would realize that we stand on no better ground than, than those who are perishing. That we would not grow self-righteous, but that we would reach out and say, if God can save a sinner like me, certainly he can save a sinner like you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.